In this episode, I'll be using outdated terminology that most of us would consider offensive today, and I'll be describing some disturbing theories and practices, so be forewarned. It is not necessary for salvation to be subject to a Roman Pope. But, Doctor, that is the heart of the heresy. In 1517, Martin Luther and his followers thought that the Catholic Church was getting too big for its boots, too powerful. Heresy, Dr. Luther! Heresy! Heresy! They thought the Church was taking advantage of people, that it was corrupt, and that a single man, the Pope, had too much influence. So a layman with scripture is better than the Pope. The story I'm telling you isn't about this rift in religious belief or organisation, so I'm not going to go into the details of the Protestant Reformation, but the very popular writings of Martin Luther started to influence how people with disabilities were viewed. Hi, I'm John Roach. I'm going to give you a rough history of disability. Attitudes to disability today are very much products of its history. If we want to understand current practices, stereotypes and infrastructure around disability, we have to revisit its past. Welcome to this Yarn mini-series. Disability, a parallel history. Episode 2. Two steps forward, one step back. Luther declared that people with disabilities were filled with Satan. The devil sits where the soul should have been, he said. He completely dehumanised people with disabilities, calling them changelings. This kind of thinking goes back a lot further than Luther to old folk tales, but it was made more widespread by an extremely popular book first published in 1480. The Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of the Witches. Here's a brief intro into the book by Beth Lander, head librarian from the College of Physicians in Philadelphia. It's attributed to two authors, Jacob Sprenger and Heinrich Kramer, both of whom were Dominican friars. It was a wildly popular book. It was reprinted 12 times between 1487 and 1519. The book puts forth a very different concept of witchcraft, one that is grounded in Satanism, with demons working specifically with witches. The authors wrote it on the form of argumentation called a disputation and it's written in three sections. The first proves the existence of witchcraft. The second demonstrates what witches did and why they did it. And the third discusses how witches can be prosecuted in both ecclesiastical or church courts and secular courts. Now, most disturbingly to me, the book describes the bulk of witches as being women, but the book describes specifically what witches were known to do. The Malleus states that witches work to divert men to irregular love, to impede the procreative force, to remove men's penises, to change men into beasts, to cause miscarriages, and to offer newborn babies to demons. It also suggested a child born with a deformity was not human at all, but instead was left by fairies who had stolen the actual child. This morphed into the belief that a child with a disability was divine retribution for some evil doing the parent had committed. Our people here today, they can't get saved! It's an effective way to keep people in line. The satanic. Imagine if you were told, sure, you might get away with not following our rules or customs, but you'll be forsaking your future children. Your children need to know there's a devil and he hates them and he wants to ruin their life. 
Some of you can't go to heaven. When the Counter-Reformation happened, I'll turn the people against him as a heretic, a.k.a. Catholicism strikes back. I'll burn his books, and I'll burn him too. The most vulnerable in society were once again targeted in these battles for who could be the most religious or pious. Inquisitions into heresy and the prosecutions for the crimes of witchcraft reach a high point from 1580 to 1630 during the Counter-Reformation. An estimated 50,000 people in Europe were killed, most burned at the stake, and 80% of those were women. Some of the women's alleged crimes being that they were possessed themselves, or that they had given birth to possessed children, or that they were cursed because they were unable to give birth at all. During this time of religious challenge and upheaval, more and more religions splintered or spun off into new organisations with varying flavours of belief. Calvin the founder of the Calvinist religion, which still exists today, Calvin preached that life is predestined, with God having already chosen those who will be saved, implying that people with disabilities were not among the chosen, and so should be shunned. But this might have had more to do with the removing of any perceived weakness or burden on their community for economic reasons. People with disabilities were likely among the poorest citizens, with few alternatives to begging for survival. The strong link between poverty and disability was becoming obvious, a link that's never really been broken. The Elizabethans of England came to the conclusion that it was the role of the government to combat poverty in their society, or as they saw it, the problem of growing numbers of beggars and unfortunates on the streets. Between 1563 and 1601, Queen Elizabeth prompted Parliament to pass a series of laws to take care of the poor and disadvantaged. These Elizabethan poor laws, as they were called, shifted more responsibility to the government for the care of the poor, which included most people with disabilities. Here's an old recording of Professor Gunnar Dybwad. But you also have to remember, in those days... Describing the Elizabethan poor houses. We dealt with inadequate people who we put into poor houses. Now, poor houses were not just for people who were poverty-stricken, but uh, rather people who, uh, who were inadequate and uh, were outcast and inconvenient and uncomfortable. Uh, people would land up in those institutions because they were sick. People with disabilities were also put to work in these poor houses. They were basically contracted out by the government to privately owned factories. Conditions in these factories were grim. It's this kind of thinking that ushered in the era of big institutions, in Western Europe anyway, for the most part run by the state. In France, between 1650 and 1700, two massive institutions were purpose-built. Salpêtrière specialised in the treatment of women and children, housing around 1400, and Bicetre held about 1600 men. The most famous, or should I say infamous, of all these types of institutions was established in London, England. The Bethlehem Hospital, better known by the name the Bethlehem Hospital, which came to be pronounced as Bedlam. Like many old hospitals, Bethlehem Hospital began as a religious order. It was founded in the 13th century as a priory dedicated to St Mary of Bethlehem. By 1400, it had become a medieval hospital, which then didn't imply medical care exactly, 
but simply meant a refuge for strangers in need. Those with nowhere else to go turned up at the Priory's doors. The original hospital was built on a site that's now covered by Liverpool Street Station. Over time, Bethlehem began to specialise in caring for those who weren't simply poor, but were also incapable of caring for themselves, particularly those considered mad. In 1547, influenced by Queen Elizabeth's poor laws and financial issues, its control passed to the Corporation of London, and its first medically qualified superintendent was employed. The hospital suffered terrible financial abuse and neglect for many years, but attitudes were changing, and mental illness was increasingly seen as a matter for medical treatment. In 1681, city governors noted the great quality of persons that come daily to see the said lunatics. Bethlehem was becoming a popular entertainment attraction. Here's Bethlehem's archivist, Colin Gale, talking about the first mention of visitors to Bethlehem in their own archives. So the early, earliest direct mention of public visiting in the minute books of the hospital's Court of Governors then is dated 23rd of March, 1637, when a prohibition is placed on the hospital's employees soliciting or receiving money for their own use from visitors to the hospital. Visits from the public were encouraged by the hospital administration which benefited from visitors' donations. But the fact that they had to discourage staff members from hitting up visitors for cash for themselves only hints at the corruption and mismanagement of the hospital. Here's Colin Gale again, reading a contemporary account from one of these visitors to Bethlehem. In 1710, the travelling German scholar von Uffenbach arrived at Bethlehem and asked to see a patient whom he had been told crowed all day like a cockerel. The staff knew nothing about him, but recommended he see another patient instead, whom they considered the most foolish and ludicrous of all, because he imagined that he was a captain and wore a wooden sword at his side and had several cock's feathers stuck into his hat. He wanted to command the others and did all sorts of tomfoolery. He saw other male patients with milder conditions, not mad, he said, but only deprived of their, of their wits or simple, and female patients he described as, I'm very sorry to say, utterly repulsive. All in all, a wonderful day out for the scholar. That's how he wrote it up. In those days, there was nothing odd about permitting or encouraging such a spectacle. Visiting Bethlehem was regarded as edifying for the same reason as attending hangings. When Bethlehem hospital administrators were planning their move to a new purpose-built facility in the 1600s, their main design concerns were not patient-centred at all, but were far more concerned with the visitor experience. Here's architectural historian Christine Stevenson. Visitors had always been admitted to Bethlehem, even when it was in the slightly crumbling accommodation at Bishopsgate. One factor in the governor's decision to build so grandly in the 1670s, I think, was the potential of a great new building to attract well-born and charitable and wealthy visitors who might support their work. But there's no doubt that Bethlehem was on the tourist trail. We start to get guidebooks published, including in French, which is interesting, at the end of the century. And along with other sites of London, Bethlehem is regularly listed. And the etiquette 
of visiting the hospital is described. We can imagine a visitor coming, walking down through Moorfields, this great open space in which um, there's a lot of activity. We, we read descriptions of pie sellers and what you would see in front of you aided by the governor's decision to insert open grills into the brick wall that surrounded uh, the area, is uh, an extremely wide, uh, grand by the standards of the day building, that you would be able to register as something grand because you would see the stone carvings, the garlands, the swags, the royal coats of arms, the Bethlehem governor's coats of arms. You'd see the great statues of so-called raving and melancholy madness on top of the main gateway into the yard. All these things people would connect with what they knew of stylish new houses, but they would understand that no house could possibly be this big. References to Bethlehem are everywhere in today's culture. It became the archetype for the concept of an asylum, and is often used as a metaphor for neglect, abuse, class structure or exploitation. Interviewed for the Guardian newspaper in 2009, Here's Colin Gale again. The TV presenter Michael Parkinson was reported to have said... I object to the exploitation of the underclass in shows like Big Brother. It's the modern version of Bedlam, where you pay to see the poor, benighted people making asses of themselves. Bethlam specialised in madness, although we know that its patients also included people with learning disabilities, falling sickness or epilepsy, physical disabilities and dementia. While isolation was thought to help a person come to their senses, as they said. These so-called medical treatments are not like anything we would practice today. We'd recognise them as torture techniques now. But it showed people were beginning to think about disability as something that could be treated or even cured. A scientific revolution in Europe was followed by the Age of Enlightenment. Philosophers and intellectuals wanted to understand human nature and what makes us who we are. Some date the beginning of the Enlightenment to René Descartes' 1637 philosophy of cognito, where he said, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. We experience the world around us within our physical bodies. How much does this influence our understanding? What is consciousness? What is the mind? We have to understand ourselves before we can understand anything else, don't we? These are some of the questions philosophers were grappling with. And what about people with so-called defective minds? If we could understand the mind itself, then we could understand and perhaps even cure those with sickness of the mind. The ideas of John Locke, an English philosopher, had an enormous influence on the treatment of people with mental and intellectual disabilities. Locke believed that our understanding and learning comes through association. He said all minds are tabula rasas, blank slates upon which to write. Or as he put it, Let us suppose the mind to be, as we say, white paper, void of all characters, without any ideas. How comes it to be furnished? Whence comes it by that vast door which the busy and boundless fancy of man has painted with almost endless variety? Whence has it all the materials of reason and knowledge? To this I answer in one word, from experience. In that 
all our knowledge is founded. It's this thinking that would have a great influence on later approaches to mental disability. If ideas derive from experience, from the senses and through reflection, then there is hope for developing these capacities in people with intellectual disabilities. Prior to this time, it was assumed that people born with any type of mental disability were unable to learn. But by Locke's logic, if we were all blank slates, we can always learn and develop more. Of course, not everyone agreed with Locke, but it did play a significant role in the development of psychology. John Locke's ideas struck a chord with another philosopher, a Frenchman, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Like John Locke, Rousseau believed in the tabula rasa concept. Rousseau asserted, man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. The noble savage was Rousseau's romantic idea of man enjoying a natural, noble or pure existence until civilization corrupts him and makes him a slave to unnatural wants. Rousseau believed that only the uncorrupted savage is in possession of real virtue. In applying his romantic ideas to education, Rousseau believed in instructing children in physical and sensory methods until age 12, developing their intellectual skills from 12 to 15, and their moral capacity from age 15 onwards. Although Rousseau didn't apply his education methods on his own children, he didn't even care for his own children. Rousseau's belief that there is worth and value in all human beings was a revolutionary idea, challenging the nobility who believed in their own superiority. Everyone is of equal worth in society and should be treated as such. Of course, it's interesting to note that these philosophers were supporters of colonialism and believed in the superior rationality of white Europeans, so their ideas of equality within society were already limited. The noble savage concept itself was drawn from a colonialist understanding of what they saw as primitive tribes who lacked rationality. The writings of Locke and Rousseau influenced the French Revolution. At the heart of the revolution was the belief that a person is worthy of dignity, not because of wealth or status, but simply because one is a human being. The French Revolution brought down the monarchy, established a republic, and eventually resulted in a dictatorship under Napoleon. We might be veering off our parallel history here for a moment, but I'll get back to it. The storming of the Bastille in 1798 is one of the major flashpoints of the revolution. The medieval fortress was notorious as a as a political prison. It represented royal authority in the centre of Paris, but the prison contained only seven inmates at the time of its storming. Even so, it was seen by the revolutionaries as a symbol of the monarchy's abuse of power. Its fall is still celebrated to this day as a national holiday in France. But nobody stormed the massive mental asylums that I mentioned earlier, the Bicetra Asylum or the Salpetriere. Even though thousands of vulnerable French citizens were being held there too, many against their will, in terrible conditions. The revolution hadn't extended to these people yet. But some of the ideas of the revolution eventually found their way into those two institutions. Four years after the storming of the Bastille, in 1793, 
Philippe Pinel, the leading French psychiatrist of his day, was the first to say that the mentally deranged were diseased rather than sinful or immoral. He removed the chains and restraints from the inmates at the Bicetra Asylum and later uh, from those of the Salpetriere. This act has developed into a romantic legend told here by Dr. Fernando Espy Fortune. The theory, I mean, the legend says that uh, all these people were in chain, you know, like they were not free. And then Philippe Pinel believed that these people should be treated humanely as medically ill patients, not as something else. And then uh, he told the physicians, I mean, this is the legend and this is the way I was told this legend when I was in medical school. He uh, proposed to free these people from the chains and people thought, oh my God, they're going to become aggressive and they're going to attack him. And and when he did that, everybody was observing what was going to happen. And, and instead of attacking him, these people started kissing uh, his hands. And we have this uh, image of this painting made later by Tony, the, the painter, the French painter called Tony Robert uh, Fleury, who painted Philippe Pinel at La Salpetriere, releasing the, the insane or the lunatics, as it was common, the aliené in the French word uh, at the time, releasing them from the chains. And the people are, instead of attacking him, uh, kissing uh, his hands. Along with English reformer William Turk, Pennell originated the method of moral management, which prescribed the use of gentle treatment and patience rather than physical abuse and chains on hospital patients. Moral treatment doesn't mean like from morality, it's not a religious thing. It's moral or morality was used for psychology. So moral treatment would be equivalent to psychological treatment as well. And the idea was to create a hospital in which the people uh, could live in society like they would live in society, like they could live in community. I mean, and the, even the physician was living there and eating with the patients and everything. So everybody was living in community. Hospitals with a more humane focus replaced the prison-like treatment of people with disabilities. So even in the humane treatment, we see treatments that now will be uh, non-humane. So it's important to know that as well. Pennell also classified types of mental illness. He pioneered individual case histories and systematic record keeping and emphasized vocational and work experience. So things were starting to move in a positive direction. The physician Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard was a student of Pennell. Itard also supported Rousseau's noble savage belief and the view that all knowledge comes through the senses. In 1799, Itard heard reports of a boy abandoned in the woods of Aveyron in France, who had apparently been raised by wolves. The child was dubbed Victor the Wild Boy. Itard offered to take the boy in as an experimental subject to prove the validity of the blank slate concept that a person could become or be made into whatever one wants. Itard intended to transform the savage boy into a normal, fully functional member of society and present him in a before and after My Fair Lady style to the world. Once there was a child left to himself in the woods. The story of Itard and the wild boy has been dramatised numerous times throughout the years. The wild child, look at him. Proof of the animal in all of us. The Wild Child, a film by Francois Truffaut. Francois Truffaut's 1970 film L'Enfant Sauvage, or The Wild Child in English, is one of the better depictions of the events as it was based heavily on Itard's original notes and journals. 
Truffaut himself played the part of Itard. Itard had the child brought to Paris and entrusted to the care of his housekeeper, Madame Green. Victor was probably, in his early teens, a child with severe mental disability who was likely abandoned by his parents. Itard saw Victor as his ideal noble savage, someone who had never been tainted by civilization and who could, with proper teaching, become super normal. The blank slate would be filled with carefully selected information. From a child who couldn't speak, would not sleep in a bed, wear clothes or eat cooked food, Victor made tremendous strides, learning to use simple communication and interact with others, mostly with Madame Green, who spent a great deal of time with them. As a scientific study, it was all very optimistic. Victor showed significant early progress in understanding language and reading simple words, but failed to progress beyond a rudimentary level. Itard grew tired and impatient, not seeing the great gains he hoped for. He gave up his hope of Victor becoming somehow perfect. He never got his big reveal or his proof of the tabula rasa or the noble savage. Again, this illustrates how prejudice led Itard to make assumptions about primitive minds and civilized society. Living outside of society had not necessarily protected Victor from unnatural wants and corruption, as Rousseau's philosophy suggested. It had only deprived him of language, education and basic social skills. But even with his limited success, Itard did prove that children with mental development issues could improve. This would have a positive influence on many of the educators of the following century. You know when I said there's multiple dramatizations of this story? Well, there's even been a musical version. Okay, that's enough of that. I've watched Truffaut's film, which is fantastic. Most of the film unfolds like a training montage, with Itard and Madame Green attempting over and over again to get Victor to perform civilised actions like putting on shoes, eating with a knife and fork, and taking a bath. There's also a recurring scene of Itard teaching Victor how to walk upright. Itard stands in front of the boy and grabs hold of one of the child's legs and pulls it forward. Then he repeats the process with the boy's other leg and so on one leg at a time, slowly and meticulously propelling Victor forward in an attempt to force the process into Victor's muscle memory. It reminded me of when I was 10 years old, when I relearned how to walk. My cerebral palsy affects my left side of my body. The muscles in my arm and leg spasm and contort uncontrollably. When I was a kid, my left leg was particularly troublesome. My left foot would go up on its toes, Getting the heel flat on the ground was almost impossible. Not only was my left foot on its toes, but my left hip had to hitch up when I walked because my leg also refused to bend at the knee. This resulted in an extreme lopsided way of walking. I guess you could call that a pretty heavy limp. I used to do exercises to try and flatten my foot down on its heel by putting all my weight on it. 
One of my physiotherapists used to say, tippy toes are great if you want to be a ballerina, but not if you want to walk. The problem is that cerebral palsy is a neurological condition, an issue with the brain and the breakdown of the messages sent to the muscles through the central nervous system. Getting the brain to change is pretty hard. You can't fix this type of brain damage exactly. But my new physiotherapist thought she could improve my walking. So just like in the Wild Child film, she slowly taught me to walk pretty much from scratch. She would sit in front of me on a small wheeled stool with her hands on my hips and as I slowly inched forward she would roll back on her stool. I would concentrate intensely on every movement my leg would make. She would ensure my hip didn't hitch up while I willed my knee to bend. I let my leg swing forward then planted my foot on the floor and put all my weight down on it forcing it to lie flat. Then I'd take one instant step forward with my right leg and start the process all over again. It would take several minutes of unbroken concentration just to walk a few steps. We repeated this process for weeks and months, walking up and down the same hallway. It was mind-numbing for me, so it must have been even more frustrating for my physiotherapist. But eventually, after I don't know how many miles of going up and down that hall, I started to get faster and finally I didn't have to concentrate as hard. It was becoming muscle memory. I remember going for my annual check-in with my fancy doctors and they couldn't believe what they saw. I was walking at normal pace with my foot flat on the ground. It was pretty amazing. So in a roundabout way I think I might be able to relate to, to Itard, Madame Green and Victor. Unfortunately, I can also relate to Itard's eventual disappointment. As I grew older and into my teens and growth spurts started to stretch my bones, my foot started to revert back to its old ways and I couldn't stop it. Doctors had to intervene later with more invasive techniques and that eventually resulted in a positive effect but it wasn't the same as the time my physio and I seemed to mentally will my leg into submission. Getting back to our parallel history, after Rousseau, Penel and Itard, by the middle of the 19th century, society was much more aware of people with disabilities. The romantic poets Wordsworth, Keats, Byron and Shelley were influenced strongly by Rousseau's call to return to nature and celebrate the worth of the individual. The poets praised the restorative potential of living a simple rural life. This rationale may have later justified locating institutions in the countryside, although there may have also been ulterior motives, as Gunnar Dybwad describes. We had larger and larger institutions, many of them placed uh, in the countryside, uh, in other words, they were isolated, and uh, the confinement was longer and longer, uh, if not permanent. Remember Pennell? the guy who decided to stop beating and chaining up the residents in his institutions. He had another famous student, Jean-Étienne Dominique Escorel. And Esquirol started like a... Dr. Fernando Espy Fortune. He really spread these ideas of Pinel. So he became like the, the disciple, a little bit like Paul and Jesus. He became the Paul of, of, of Pinel, you know, like he spread this idea. Escorel went on to become the most well-known psychiatrist in France. Some regard him as the first person to formally teach psychiatry in France. 
As well as advocating Pennell's moral management techniques, Escorel expanded on Pennell's medical definitions. Escorel divided intellectual deficiency into two levels, idiocy and imbecility. He defined imbeciles as generally well-formed and their organisation is nearly normal. They enjoy the use of intellectual and affective faculties, but in less degree than the perfect man, and they can be developed only to a certain extent. Escorel defined idiots as persons with little or no intellectual functioning. Incapable of attention, idiots cannot control their senses. They hear, but they do not understand. They see, but they do not regard. Having no ideas and thinking not, they have nothing to desire. Therefore, they have no need of signs nor of speech. Escorel's concept, though limiting and, quite frankly, insulting, provided some consistency to the terminology used to describe people with intellectual disabilities. In the 1800s, training schools for people with disabilities were beginning to be established throughout Europe. Itard had convinced society that children with disabilities could be given some level of tuition rather than just sending them to asylums to live out their lives in obscurity. The focus of these schools was to teach children with disabilities practical skills rather than full education. Edward Seguin, who studied under Itard and Escorel, is considered the first great teacher in the field of disabilities. He developed upon Itard's method of sensory training. He won a prize at the Paris Academy for designing the first curriculum for idiots. Here's Dr. Bob Jackson describing the focus of Seguin's curriculum. The goal is not to teach, but to make the students productive members of their community. So we're trying, we're sort of, there's no point in teaching them, but we might as well actually try and get some productivity out of them. Now, if you look at that um, curriculum there, Clearly what's missing is all of the mathematics and uh, reading and writing and all of those things. What we have is life skills. And that is still the curriculum in special education today. And so when you, when you, you can sort of see how long these ideas last and where they actually came from was not a, a beneficial idea, but basically the idea that these children couldn't learn and all we can do is actually give them a few life skills. Seguin's methods served as a foundation for similar efforts throughout Europe and America. Among those later influenced by his teaching methods was the Italian Maria Montessori, a pioneer in teaching children with and without disabilities. And we also see remnants of Seguin's ideas in what we call occupational therapy today. In 1850, Seguin left France for the United States and worked with Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe, Dr. Hervey Wilbur, and others in developing American training schools. Wilbur and Howe established several of their own schools modelled on Seguin's ideas. Howe was the director of the Perkins School for the Deaf and the Blind. He established his own school called the Massachusetts School for Idiotic and Feeble-Minded Youth, and Wilbur established a number of schools for the feeble-minded in Pennsylvania, New York and Iowa. Feeble-minded was a generic term for people with intellectual disabilities commonly used at the time. Both Wilbur and Howe believed in the importance of family and community and wanted their schools to prepare children with disabilities to live with the rest of society. Training schools were considered an educational success, offering hope to many families with children with disabilities. 
During this time, and before the trading schools became large institutions, school superintendents had a huge educational focus. Following Saguin's teaching methods, pupils would receive physical training to improve their motor and sensory skills, basic academic training, and instruction in social and self-help skills. Like Escarel, in 1852, Wilbur developed his own classification for so-called idiots. He divided his students into four categories of descending order of ability. At the top was the stimulative student. These were merely retarded. Next was higher grade, those who would eventually enter a normal school. Then came lower grade, who could be educated to simple tasks and possibly live in the community. And finally, at the bottom, was the incurables, idiots for whom education was only a goal. Most of these schools were private, so they were only available to parents who could afford it. Here's a letter written to Howe on behalf of the author's employee, who is asking if there's a place for his son at Howe's school. Dear Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe, I left an application at your office in Bromfield Street yesterday on behalf of James Doe, who desires to have his son admitted into the institution for feeble-minded youth. James is an industrious man who has been employed as a gardener by my father and myself, more or less, for the last four years. His boy has grown to be exceedingly troublesome, escaping from home as often as possible and causing his parents much anxiety. Of late they have felt obliged to confine him in the cellar during the father's enforced daily absence. I beg you will give the case your kind consideration, assured that it is a worthy one and deserving prompt treatment. Very respectfully yours, William Doe, July 7, 1841. As the number of copycat training schools increased, not all of them were as committed to training as the original establishments, and none were regulated or standardised. To cut costs, schools were becoming bigger and bigger, with less staff. Schools were reverting back to asylums in all but name, and pupils became inmates again. The state was coming under increased pressure to provide care for the severely disabled. By 1875, most community-based teachings for disabled young people were replaced by custodial care for all ages and all disabilities. State-run institutions dominated America. In the early 1800s, sign language was a widely used and a valued language among teachers at schools for deaf people. But from the 1860s onwards, there was a concerted campaign to banish sign language from classrooms and replace it with lip reading and speech only. This kind of thinking is called oralism. And no doubt you've heard of the most famous oralist. In case you didn't catch that, that was the voice of Alexander Graham Bell, recorded in 1887. Most know Alexander Graham Bell as the inventor of the telephone, but few are aware that for the majority of his life he worked in deaf education. Bell's father and grandfather were both distinguished speech therapists, and from a young age the future inventor joined in the family business. 
In 1873, Bell became a professor of vocal physiology at Boston University, where he met his future wife, Mabel Hubbard, a student 10 years his junior who had completely lost her hearing from a bout of scarlet fever. Bell's mother also had a severe hearing impairment due to a childhood illness. She was reliant on an ear trumpet to hear anything. Bell was a serious oralist, totally opposed to sign language. He combined this with his disdain for immigrants. He described sign language as essentially a foreign language and argued that in an English-speaking country like the United States, the English language and the English language alone should be used as the means of communication and instruction. For years, oralists condemned sign language, claiming it encouraged deaf people to associate only with each other and to avoid the hard work of learning to communicate with people who spoke English. By the start of the 20th century, 40% of American deaf students were being taught without the use of sign language. This rose to 80% by the end of World War I, despite the fact that most deaf people rejected oralist philosophy. Oralism remained the norm in American schools for deaf people until the 1970s. There are deaf adults now who still remember those days with anger and resentment. This is Jack Gannon, interviewed in 1994. We're not quite finished with Alexander Graham Bell yet, He'll pop up again in the next episode. Jumping back to the 1800s, at the time, many leading physicians and school superintendents and educators, including Samuel Gridley Howe, believed in phrenology. Phrenologists believed that intelligence, personality and morality were determined by the shape of the skull. So various bumps in the head were supposed to indicate different um, aspects of personality. Here's Dr. Bob Jackson. And in terms of intelligence, women had smaller heads, so obviously. Yeah, so this, again, had a, a quite a major influence because it was science being used as a means to actually devalue various groups. According to phrenology, people were naturally considered unequal. So-called scientists said it proved that some people were superior to others. Again, it bears a similarity to the assumptions made by philosophers such as Rousseau of white European rationality and the primitive nature of uncivilised savages. Phrenologists concern themselves with the same issues that were later to be addressed by social Darwinists and eugenists. You could say that phrenology was the gateway to eugenics and one of the darkest periods in our history of disability. We'll get to that and a lot more in episode three. In the next episode of Disability, A Parallel History. The fear of people of inferior intelligence, of inferior social capacity, that created in our country what we called the genetic scale. We had in all, all Western societies these eugenic societies 
going up for the science of better breeding. I visited the state institutions for the mentally retarded, and I think particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that borders on a snake pet, and that the children live in filth. We don't want any more institutions. We have enough of that stuff. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com. Written and ranted by John Roach.